You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, thank you all. It's been uh, oh, such a joy for me to be here with you all uh, for this time, and um, I've just really been so blessed by it, and um, we'll miss you all um and uh so anyway it's just been a real joy so thank you all thank you yes so i head home tomorrow and um (laughs) i think my husband might have something to say at this point honestly he's ready to have me home and Uh, We're in the middle of fire season in Montana, so um, please do keep us in prayer. It's been, we haven't had that horrible heat dome, but we've been unusually hot and uh, it's starting to, it's shaping up to be a really dangerous fire season. My husband is a volunteer firefighter for our community and um, they're already calling mutual aid elsewhere in the state because of some huge fires and um, so it's just, uh, it's kind of a dangerous time, and he likes to have me home at this time because when he's out fighting fires, if I have to evacuate the house, there's somebody there to load up the ditch kit and the dogs and hit the road. So, um, so uh, yeah, so please do keep, uh, do keep the West in your prayers right now. It's pretty, pretty scary. So, um, so that's... That's me, uh, but I will miss the fabulous food, and I will miss all of you and just being able to say in a class, so who can tell me the first king of Israel, and people knowing the answer, that's a treat for me, and um, so anyway, it's, it's been a joy, but all right, well, so today I want to talk about Mary Magdalene, and um, uh, this this uh, this class is in part one that I, I've used for um, my st- studies at the chapel uh, down in Florida, um, and uh, one of the things that I discovered is that um, uh, you know sometimes, especially in our society that grew up with TV, we tend to be pretty visual people, and um, and so I've uh, I've had a lot of fun the last year or so with my chapel Bible studies, bringing in a lot of art um, and talking about how art intersects with the Bible, where artists get it right and where they get it wrong. Um, and so one of the classes was on Mary Magdalene because uh, I've realized there is a lot of confusion about Mary Magdalene. And um, I think that's unfortunate um, and I think it's a real help for us to, um, to understand her and her role in the biblical witness a little better. So, um, so that's what I want to do today. Um, so you've got a handout and I'm afraid, um, the, uh, the pictures did not copy as well as I would have liked. So I would encourage you to, um, look these paintings up online um, you can find a lot of them actually um, on sites where you can scroll over and like really get real detail on these paintings, which is so much fun to really hone in and see what's going on in some of these paintings. And so, um, 
so I will um, be also referencing a few other uh, painting examples that I did include in your handout, but you know, if, if you want to take notes um, on that, just look at them later, I would encourage you to do that. So, all right, so what are the scandals that we know about Mary Magdalene? What's the number one thing most people know about Mary Magdalene? All the men? Yeah, that she was a prostitute, right. All right. Um, for those of you that saw the Da Vinci Code, what else does modern the world tell us about? She was Jesus's wife, right. So those are probably the two big things that we know about Mary Magdalene. So I want us to look at what the Bible actually says. So first of all, Mary, does anybody know the Hebrew for Mary? Miriam. Yay! <laughs> and who can tell us about the really important Miriam in the Bible? Moses' sister. Moses's sister, right. Um, in the intertestamental period, um, the name shows up a lot as Mariamne. Can anybody tell me a famous intertestamental Mariamne? One of Herod's the Great's wife. Mm. She was a daughter of the Hasmonean line of kings in the, the Jewish line, the Hasmoneans. Uh, for any of you that know the intertestamental literature, the Mat books of Maccabees, they're, they're the first Hasmonean leaders um, it, for this Jewish kingdom in the intertestamental period. And one of the line from the Hasmoneans is this woman, Mariamne, who Herod the Great marries to sort of legitimize his rule. So you've got Miriam of Moses, you've got the queen, Mariamne. So in Jesus's day, Mary or Miriam or Mariamne is a very popular girl's name. And this creates one of the problems that we have in the New Testament, doesn't it? There's a whole lot of Marys. <laughs> and one of the problems with Mary Magdalene is confusion uh, about which Mary. Um, because they tend to get conflated, and we're going to see how that works out here. And then she's known as Mary Magdalene, or Mary Magdalene. So that Magdalene is actually a Greek word that means Mary of or from Magdala. And Magdala is a city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, um, it was a prosperous commercial town, very much connected to the fishing industry on the Sea of Galilee. We know that they were particularly noteworthy for drying the fish that came out of the Sea of Galilee, this freshwater fish, drying it, salting it, and it was shipped all over the Roman world. They have found um, uh, pots uh, with seals on them of fish from the Sea of Galilee sent from Magdala to Rome into the courts, to the, the Roman courts. So this is a very prosperous town. Um, and we're going to talk more about Magdala in a little bit. But the name is really interesting. That Hebrew word Magdala um, means, uh, it's related to two Hebrew words, um, uh, Migdal, which means tower, and Gadol, which means strong or mighty. So Magdala means the strong or mighty tower. 
Now, we think that that name is probably what, was what it was called for two reasons. First of all, because they would dry the fish on these big towers that, that um, were open so that the fish could dry well, catch the airflow. But also, this part of Galilee was pretty religious. So our God is a strong tower. So probably um, using that name to calling on God to basically be a strong tower for this town. So that twofold understanding there. Now, the thing that's most interesting about Mary Magdala, Mary of Magdala, is that she is identified by where she comes from. Now, how are most women, might you imagine, in the first century AD identified? By their husbands, right, right. Um, interestingly, you know, the term Mrs. actually designates that we belong to our husband's named family. So, um, so just as an aside, but that's how women in the, in the early, in this era in, in the Roman world were known. They were, they were known as like Susanna, the wife of Husa, the steward of Herod. So it's unusual that Mary is not identified by a husband. So what does this tell us about Mary? That she was single somehow. How might she have been single? Probably a widow. Now, it may be that she was never married, but that was pretty unusual. So probably means that she was a widow. Well, that, that she would have kept the married name, but the fact that she's not known by her married name means that she's done something kind of unusual in the ancient world. She has really established her own name, probably in business, and many scholars think that Mary of Magdala was probably a significant businesswoman in the fish drying trade who took over either her husband's business or perhaps inherited her father's business if there had been no male heirs. And so this is, this is a capable, strong woman who is not really known as, you know, for her widowhood, she's known for her business acumen. Oh, Mary of Magdala. Oh yeah, she's, you know, it's like Meg Whitman of Google, right? You know, it's like, oh, Meg of Google, we all know who we're talking about there. Or, you know, you may know other, other strong women in business who become very much identified with the businesses they run. So, um, so, you know, we're, we're having to make some sort of guesses here. They're not wild guesses. Um, but um, what we're seeing here is something a little unusual, and so she stands out. But we think that Mary, we're told in church history that Mary was a prostitute. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 37, if you've got your Bibles, not Luke 37. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. All right. So one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. 
Now, what do we know is happening at this point in Luke's gospel already between the Pharisees and Jesus? There's already suspicion, animosity, hostility. They're already trying to catch him out. So is this invitation by this Pharisee purely like, come and be my guest? No, it's a testing and Jesus fails. So, um, and so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And, oh, and so this reclining at the table, cultural anthropology here, this would have been a triclinium style table. So for those of you that studied Roman history, so a low table in the center um, people would have sat around this like sort of low table. Um, it, there would have been a big open space in the middle, low table in the center. Everybody would have laid down on their side, like their left on their left side, propping themselves up on their left arm, reaching in for the food um, on, with their right hand. Um, it seems like a really uncomfortable way to eat, but it's what they did then. Um, and then the whole center bit would have been open for serving people to bring more food and switch stuff out. So this is, this is the thing. So your feet are poked out towards the back of the room, the walls of the room. And so this is how this sets up. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, right? Do, do all of your translations say sinner? Okay. What does your translation say? Lived a sinful life. Okay, great. Any, okay, um, so who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So this is very expensive. Um, alabaster probably brought in from Egypt, very expensive gift with ointment. So ointment also an expensive gift and standing behind him at his feet Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and then wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet and anointed them with an ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known what kind of terrible woman this was touching him for she is a sinner or a sinful woman again. And, um, and Jesus answering, and I love this, Jesus answers what this guy thought, which is a little scary, right? So, <laughs> um, which is why we don't really have to put on masks for the Lord, right? Because he already knows. So, um, which is a little disturbing because sometimes I'm like, ooh, I wish God didn't know I just thought that. But he does. Uh, you might as well confess it because he knows. <laughs> and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. And he tells, then Jesus tells this, this parable of the, of the debts and the debtor. And then Jesus gives the, um, the, the nimshal. So he, he explains it then. So he tells the story, uh, the, the, the mashal, the parable, and then he gives the nimshal, the explanation of it. Um, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. Okay, so if we're wondering whether this Pharisee was really inviting Jesus as his guest, that line there tells you everything you need to know. It was absolutely customary in the Middle East that when a guest came to your home, the first thing that you did was 
wash their feet because they're wearing these horrible camel sandals, which are uncomfortable. The roads are dusty and dirty and it's hot and your feet are getting cut up and it's terrible. The first thing that you do if you are a good host and are caring about your guest is either you or more likely a servant, if you're wealthy like this Pharisee seems to be, washes their feet. This Simon the Pharisee did not care for Jesus. He did not give him, he didn't even give him water. Not only did he not wash his feet, he didn't even give him a jug of water to wash his own feet. You know, it's very, I mean, this is a huge, again, within the Middle Eastern world, this is a huge breach of hospitality. It's literally like going to someone's house, being invited for dinner, and them handing you a bag of McDonald's out the door and telling you to sit on the porch while everybody else eats inside. Would you ever do that? Mm. No, this is what this is like. It is so dishonoring and so rude and really just kind of hateful that he has not given Jesus water for his, not even given him water for his feet. So, um, so this is a significant moment. Um, but this woman, She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. So, you know, this is very, like, she is like, she's not even looking for a towel. She, she will, she will use her own hair, like literally just to be in the presence of God. Um, and then she, um, he, the Simon did not anoint Jesus's head with oil. Again, that was a way of cleaning the dust off and of just being refreshed. Personally, it sounds a little gross to me. I mean, who, you know, who wants oil, but this is the way it was. So, so, but, but literally like Simon's hospitality has been utterly lacking in kindness, but this woman has taken ointment um, to anoint his feet, like just totally kind of abasing herself, just like laying it all down for the Lord. Um, so her sins that are many are uh, forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Um, and so the woman's sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So let's talk first of all about this woman being a sinner. The word for that is translated as sinner or sinful woman is a hamartolos, which is seen many times in the New Testament. And here's where we get into some translational things that annoy the fire out of me. <laughs> all right. Um. In some translations, particularly older translations, uh, they translate that, the harmartios here, which is sinner, as prostitute or fallen woman. The harmartios in older translations, when it was translated for men, just used the word sinner. So Luke 5, 8 says the same thing. Jesus says, or Peter says to Jesus, um, depart from me for I am a sinful man, hamartolos. Same word that was translated as sinner or sinful man, 
but in older translations of the Luke 7 passage, it said she was a prostitute. And so this grew up. And we're going to talk, come back to why that was translated as prostitute. But um, it, that is not what that says. That is not what Luke 7 says. It does not say she's a prostitute. It says she's a sinner. So why does, where does this get mixed up with Mary? Well, Luke chapter 8. <laughs> and we need to think about this because this is important. Now, remember that chapters and verses were not original to the scripture. Those were added later to help us find things more easily. In the original, you don't have chapters and verses. So in the original Aramaic Greek texts, you don't have chapters and verses. So we know that it's the beginning of a new chapter. But even if you ignore your chapter marking there and think it's all part of the same segment, this is how, uh, so, it, so chapter 7 ends. And he said to the woman at Simon, at Simon the Pharisee's house, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Period. Next sentence. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna and Susanna, who provided for them out of their means. Is this the same event? No. Is Mary the sinful woman in Luke 7, 36 through 50? No evidence of that. No evidence of that. What do we know about Mary from Luke 8, 1 through 5? She had means. She had means. Yep, her name is Mary. She is named. She's from Magdala. Seven demons. She had seven demons. Is she in any way, shape, or form associated with the woman of chapter 7? No, she's not. So um, this Mary had seven demons cast out of her, thanks be to God. And she has means, and she uses those means to support Jesus' work. So, how come we think Mary was a prostitute? Well, because of Pope Gregory the Great in 592. 500 years late, almost 600 years later, she gets conflated. Now, I don't know that Gregory was trying to silence women. You know, that's one of the things that I hear a lot. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I think what happened to poor old Gregory was that he just got confused. <laughs> um, and then what he does, and he talks about Mary Magdalene a lot, and he holds her up as an example of a completely sinful woman who um, is uh, rejects her terrible uh, prostitution ways and becomes a follower of Jesus. So what he did with it, I don't think was trying to belittle women. I think he got confused and conflated them. But unfortunately, that narrative then becomes a huge narrative 
for the church moving forward. And what he said in a sermon in 592, and you'll notice there's going to be a few problems that he has here. He, he wrote, the one that Luke calls a sinner, that's Luke 7, not Luke 8. And that John names Mary from John 11. Now, if y'all remember John 11, this is a totally different Mary. This is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So we've got some Mary confusion going on here. Um, and we believe that she is that Mary of whom, according to Mark, the Lord has cast out seven demons. This is Mary Magdalene. So Mark 16, 9 and Luke 8, 1 through 5 are Mary Magdalene who had seven demons cast from her and who had means and supported Jesus and his ministry from those means. And then he goes on to do, so he's got some Luke confusion, some Mary confusion, and also the confusion of Mark of Luke 7 with Luke 8. And here's what he does with it and why this takes such hold in the church up until about the last 60 years. He went on to write, and what are these seven demons? So this is genuinely Mary Magdalene of the seven demons, if not the universality of all vices. The, the seven demons were the universality of all vices. In other words, Mary, the sinner from Luke 7, is a sinner because Mary Magdalene had seven demons, and seven is that number of like the full complement of demons. Pope Gregory basically allegorized the seven demons to indicate the totality of all sin. So, or if you want to think of it in some terms, like the seven deadly sins. So this woman was completely fallen. She was a cheat and a liar and a prostitute and just terrible. And the seven demons were the example of that. But they're two different women. <laughs> so, but this is why it catches on. Mary had seven demons in her for she was full of all vices. Yeehaw. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else to say about that. Um, uh, but now, having seen the stains that dishonored her, she ran to wash herself at the source of mercy without blushing in the presence of the guests. Luke 7 again, washing you know, with her tears in the presence of all the people gathered at Simon the Pharisee's meal there. So great was her shame inside that she could not see anything outside to blush. In other words, you know, she was so riddled with sin that the, the, the approval, the opinion of the world and of others had no meaning for her. So she's so in her sin. This is quite a statement. Now, in fairness, Gregory really uses this as a hopeful word to all sinners. 
that if Mary, but remember he's conflating the women of seven and eight, you know, if, if, if she can be redeemed, so can we all. This is, he's, he's using this really ultimately as a great story of hope. But he's done bad exegesis. And unfortunately, this bad exegesis then gets picked up in the church and it just gets stuck. And so we stop reading what actually the Bible says and we start assuming what it says. And we do this all the time. It's why we've always got to be careful when we study the Bible. You know, we're always reading what we think we know into what it actually says. And we have to be really careful of that. And fortunately, in the last 60 years or so, people have said, hey, wait, Luke 8 seems to be a totally different person than Luke, Luke 7. This Mary, this, there doesn't seem to be any connection. You know, this woman in Luke 7 is a unique person. And then there's Mary, who's a different person. And so, um, so this, this is, I think, why in the West... We have seen Mary as a prostitute. Now, the other reason this whole concept of Mary as a prostitute really takes hold is because of Christian art in the West. Because you've got a bunch of Marys, right? Now, you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's very highly venerated. So there were all sorts of church rules on how you could and could not portray the Virgin Mary, the BVM. And, um, but we also know that starting in the Renaissance, what do, what do artists like to paint a lot, ladies? Religious themes themes and naked women. (laughs) Right, right. So we start seeing this interest in the, in the, in women's, the women's form. And some of that is innocent. Some of it's probably a little less innocent, but anyway, um, but, uh, so you can't, you can't portray the Blessed Virgin Mary in any ways, but the most demure, but you can portray Mary Magdalene, who was the prostitute, however you want. <laughs> and so we start seeing some really interesting art. And so, uh, in your handout there, you've got uh, on the front page there, you've got the picture of Martha and Mary Magdalene by Caravaggio from 1598. I actually love, I love a lot of Caravaggio stuff. Now he painted Mary Magdalene twice. One of them is really sad and depressing. Um, It's, uh, it's, you should look it up. It's Mary Magdalene. She's in a brown dress and she's sitting in this tiny little chair and she looks all sort of like, it's really a weird painting, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in it. But this one is my favorite of the two. What do you see immediately is the problem here? If it's Martha from Bethany, then that's not her sister. Exactly. We've got Mary confusion going on here. So he is confused. Mary of Bethany with Mary Magdalene. Mary from Magdala. So first of all, you've got Mary confusion going on there. Um, It's a beautiful painting though. So it's in the Detroit Institute of Art for those of you that want to take a look at it online. And so Mary there, first of all, she's got her arm on a looking glass. Right. And so this is a polished piece of, of metal so that she could see her reflection. And it's convex, which does what? 
enlarges her, right? So, so what you're seeing there is this very vain woman, because of course prostitutes are all vain, aren't they? You know, there's and there's a whole thing here. You know, I was teaching this with um, a woman who's done a lot of work with with women who wind up in prostitution, and like she said, it's just really heartbreaking because most women don't wind up as prostitutes because it's a fun career choice. They generally will end up as prostitutes because they have no other options. So, but this is interesting, isn't it? So we're seeing very much a statement being made about Mary Magdalene, the prostitute, that she's extremely vain. Um, and look at what she's wearing there. She's wearing brocade, very expensive fabric. Um, very expensive and this red the red sort of shawl part of her dress is red part of its green which I know doesn't come out really well in your copies there her blouse is very low cut because she's sort of wanton um, there on the table in front of her you see a comb and a sponge for makeup powder in a little dish so she's vain 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 and she's a prostitute because she is full of all vices, like the Pope said, right? Um, but she is looking at her sister, her sister, Martha. And Martha, and it's hard to see in your, in your copy there, and I apologize for that. But she's wearing like rough wool. And she's got a little green and a little red, but she's also got that kind of dun-colored uh, wrap around her. But she's much more demure. And she's counting on her fingers. And this is, she's enumerating, um, you know, basically she was supposed to be enumerating the reasons that Mary should turn from her vain prostitution ways and become a follower of Jesus, like Martha. Because who's one of the first people to proclaim Jesus as, you know, the son, you are the son of God, you can do anything. It's Martha. So Martha here is trying to, as the older sister, is trying to convince her wayward younger sister to turn from her evil ways and follow Jesus. And Mary is looking at her and she's holding a little white flower, which was a symbol of new life and purity. So this is really, Caravaggio is trying to capture this moment of conversion. But we've got these problems. We've got the conflation of Mary Magdalene with Mary of Bethany, and we have the conflation of the woman from Luke 7 with Mary Magdalene in Luke 8. So we've got all of this confusion. It is nonetheless a beautiful picture. Yeah. Could he be saying that the incident in Luke 7 is the same thing as John 12? That there was one anointing. Is that possible or is that... Um, could be, I think really there's just confusion between these women and the anointing in, um, in 12 is Mary of Bethany, Bethany. not who is never anywhere considered to be a wanton or vain woman. So you've just got confusion happening, um, but being sort of solidified in art. Yeah. Cause Luke 12 is the story of Mary anointing Jesus's feet in Bethany, Mary of Bethany, yeah, Mary of Martha and Lazarus, yeah. So this really is, and Caravaggio called this Martha and Mary Magdalene. So there's just confusion going on that gets really written in stone in a way that poor Mary Magdalene's been considered a prostitute for 2,000 years. 
So, um, or Mary, you know, and then Mary gets sort of gets sideswipes Mary of Bethany as well. Um, so another, the second picture there, this is, uh, I love this paint. I, I'm a big old fan of the pre-Raphaelites. So, um, and it real this picture really did not copy well. And I apologize. So soup, please do check this out online at the Delaware Art Museum. Um, this is a beautiful pre-Raphaelite, but she's got this green brocade behind her. Um, she's got this flaming red hair that the pre-Raphaelites were deeply fond of. Um, and uh, she's wearing like a red um, arts and crafts scarf around her shoulders. And do you see what's in her hand? An alabaster jar. This also was called Mary Magdalene. Um, and so we again see this confusion of these women from Luke 7, Luke 8, or Luke 12, Luke 8. So the confusion of the Marys, the confusion of, uh, with this sinful woman. So, um, so th there's a lot going on here with poor, poor old Mary Magdalene. And I, again, I don't know, was, were, was the Pope trying to, to discredit this amazing woman? I don't think so. I think he was just, there's just confusion. So then if you turn over to the second page, we've got another poor old Mary. Yeah, Liz. So, so there are two women who washed feet. And the woman in Luke 7 is simply not Mary. Right. Yeah. And then Mary does it again. Mary of Bethany washes his feet again in Luke 12. This is a very common thing to, as I said, when it, you know, it was common for people to wash feet. It's, but it, you know, it usually was menial labor, which is why when Jesus does the feet washing at the Last Supper, it's so radical. So yeah, were there more than, I think that this was a, a huge way for people to say, you are my Lord and my Savior. You know, I, I am, you know, I lay my whole life before you. And a way that you could really express that was by washing someone's feet. So, yeah. No, we're not told, which I kind of love. You know, a lot of times the Bible will name people that the world would not name, but not always. And I think the Luke 7, she is unnamed because she's all of us. We are all, we should all be the woman in Luke 7. And that's why the parable in Luke 7 that Jesus tells Simon the Pharisee is so important. Because whether we, re we realize it or not, we have all been forgiven a great debt. And, and what is our response to that? Well, it should be these acts of love, you know, of a totally laying down ourselves for, for the sake of Christ. So I think the lack of name here in Luke 7 allows us to put our name in that place. We are that woman. At our best, at our best, we are the woman of Luke 7, who is not necessarily a prostitute. We're all just sinners. You know, this whole prostitution thing makes me so sad because it's, it, it just, it, it makes us say, well, I'm not a prostitute, so I guess I'm okay. That's not, it is, I am a sinful woman. And, but I know that you are a great savior. And so I, I lay my life before you, knowing that you will raise me up. And so I love that she's not named. So yeah, that's, that's my theory anyway. So yeah. Why was she even there? Right. Yeah. She just wandered in. 
how awesome is that? Yeah, you know, the tri the triclinemes, you know, houses were fairly more open. You had like big courtyards and, you know, and, and the door was probably left open and she just wandered in. And how great is that? I've heard that Jesus is there and I, there is not anything in heaven or on earth that's going to stop me from going to see him and encounter him. And I love that, that she just literally, she's got nothing to lose. Why not? It's like the woman with the issue of blood. You know, in, in, um, uh, you know, the woman with the hemorrhage for, she is like, I am not supposed to be in among all these people because I'm considered ritually unclean. So I'm not going to have, I, I know I can't like go up to Jesus and talk to him face to face, but there is nothing that is going to stop me from at least touching the hem of his robe. Nothing. And so she does, I mean, she risks being trampled to death to just touch the hem of his robe. And I love this. I love the holy boldness of these women that are always like just doing things that were so culturally, you know, improper and unexpected because they are like, he is the savior and I am reaching out to touch him. And I love this about these women, whether they're named or unnamed. Yeah. So. Right. But she, so I assumed that she was letting her hair down. She really, yeah, she did. She, it is very intimate, which is part of what has played in, in later years to, oh, she must have been a wanton woman. Um, but really it is, it is just, it is intimate, but not in a like, sexualized way. It is literally, I'm giving my all. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'm not going to use, she might not have had a towel with her. She is like tears and hair. This is like literally laying down her whole life and all of her pride, giving everything away for her Lord. So it it is very, I mean, I frankly, I can't. I, can't, I would never wipe my husband's hair with feet with my hair. It's just weird and gross, right? So, um, so this is a really shocking moment. I mean, it's shocking. Everything about this would have been so shocking to the guys at that at that meal. You know, all these upright Pharisees who have everything correct. It would have been so shocking to them. But she is like literally, I am laying down my pride, everything, to serve you, Lord. Yeah. So it, it is very intimate, but not in a way that later, later writers will sexualize and sort of double down on, oh, she was a prostitute. You know, I, it's just really giving her all here. Yeah. So, so it's amazing. But so this hair thing, again, the hair is important. Great segue. So the, again, the Luke seven, Luke eight, Mary Magdalene confusion, the pit pictures on the next page. So the one on the left-hand side is Titian, Mary Magdalene. And there's a few things that are going on here. Um, and <laughs> this is called, he painted her twice. Um, so this one that you've got is his early one in 1531. Um, and so the, uh, this one, <laughs> I love this, he's terrible. <laughs> So first of all, you know, she's got all this hair, but you know, she's completely unexposed essentially. 
Um, so, you know, you, you see again this doubling down on her as kind of a wanton woman, but her hair is super long. So the woman from Luke 7. But we also see, though, something else happening here. So it's, you can't, may not be able to really see in the background there because it photocopied too dark. But um, it's not really Jerusalem behind her. It's actually France behind her. And here we see some more confusion. So um, she's got a little jar of ointment by the side of her as well. That's your alabaster jar. So Luke 7, again, very strongly. But the painting is of Mary Magdalene. So why is Mary Magdalene with the other gal's jar of ointment in France? (laughs) Okay, so this is because um, in the Middle Ages, there was a book called The Golden Legend. And it had stories about the Christian saints. And uh, we see more Mary confusion here. So there was a story, a legend that grew up that said um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus of Bethany fled Jerusalem because they were hunting them down because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So that was a problem for the religious leadership because Jesus really could do what he said he did. And they fled from the Holy Land and wound up in France um, in a leaky boat, no less. So this was a miraculous arrival um, that the the Bethany family winds up in France. And then um, while they're there, Martha ends up planting church. She kills a dragon. Martha kills a dragon. And she starts establishing churches and proclaiming the gospel. Lazarus, interestingly, sort of drops out of the story a little bit. But it's the women that carry it in the golden legend. And then Mary of Bethany ends up living in a cave. Well, somewhere along the line, Mary of Bethany gets confused with Mary Magdalene again. And uh, so Mary Magdalene then is said to live in this cave in France where she dedicates her whole life to prayer and to, um, you know, uh, to just cleansing herself of her sinful ways. And so she turns her back on all of her worldly finery and goes about naked. But to cover her nakedness, her hair grows extra special long and covers her nakedness. So Titian captures that a little here. Now, the other picture that you've got there is another Mary Magdalene icon where it's not the hair on her head that is long. She literally becomes super duper furry. (laughs) So I like to call these two Harry Mary. So, (laughs) um, and so Mary just totally stops shaving and just grows fur like a goat all over her. So she has eschewed all of her brocade and her finery, all of her potions and all of her jewelry, and she's now just covered in hair. And, and so what does, this recalls a few things. You know, it, it doubles down on the fact that she was a prostitute, and a lot of the art loved to portray her basically naked with long hair, but where you could sort of see everything, Right. But um, so it allowed a lot of that to happen in art. Um, But it also, though, is it's recalling a return to Eden, that when we are forgiven in Christ, we are basically the way is opened for us again to new life. So uh, in with the Lord. And so uh, so and how God clothed Eve 
he with you know fig leaves so he is going to clothe mary with with hair so so we see this continuing in art um and harry mary there which is just so <laughs> distressing but anyway um and then the next two are actually two of my favorite of mary magdalene they are um they are two paintings by george de la tour he painted her twice the french artist and i love these um, the early one on the left, you'll see that she's got a short or her skirts hiked up and her blouse is down again, sort of prostitute there, but she's holding a skull on her lap. The wages of sin is death. So she's contemplating her sinfulness and her death, but which way is she looking? She's looking at the light of Christ. So this is a moment, again, a moment of conversion. The second painting is similar. Her skirt's down. Her blouse is a little more demure. And this time I think it's interesting because the light now is reflected in a mirror. So like the light is doubled. So now the mirror that she used to look into primp is now reflecting the light of Christ. So just I think this is really, these are two of my favorite Mary pictures, even though there's still that confusion. Because the wages of sin is death. And so in, in a lot of Christian art, there, there is often a skull portrayed as like this, this moment of decision. Are we going to go, you know, we're all born into the sin of Adam, um, but are we going to, to stick with that or are we going to follow Jesus? So you'll often see in Christian art skulls as a symbol of mortality and of the reality of, of um, what sin leads to. So that's Mary, our little prostitute who gets redeemed because of... Uh, you know, but there's bad exegesis there. So Mary, really, we can't we can't say it's not a different woman there. And this is what the Eastern Church has always known. So in the East, Mary Mary of Magdalene was never conflated with the sinful woman of Luke seven or with Mary of Bethany. Quite quite possibly because um, they were reading. The Bible in what? In Greek, instead of in translations. Um, they read it in its original. So that solves a lot of problems. So people sometimes say to me, well, why do you need to study Greek and Hebrew? Well, because sometimes we need to actually read what it says instead of how somebody translated it. And for any of you that were language majors, you probably know the old saying, but all translation is interpretation at some level. So you got to be careful. And unfortunately, in the West, we were probably not as careful as we should have been. The Greek never had this confusion in the Eastern churches. So in the Eastern churches, the iconography of Mary um, is usually her carrying a linen cloth and a, um, a jug that is not the alabaster ointment. What is this? Why is she carrying this in the East? Right, to prepare his body properly for burial. This is Mary of Magdala. This is Mary of Magdala, yep. So she here in this icon 
um, is carrying grave clothes and spices to prepare Jesus's body properly for burial. And she's got a red egg. And that red egg is super interesting because just like the West had the golden legend, so in the East, tales grew up around Mary Magdalene. And they said, though, that because Mary was the first to proclaim what? The resurrection. Mary is known in the Eastern churches as the apostle to the apostles, the sent one to the sent ones with the gospel. She's highly venerated in the East. She's known as the holy myrrh bearer because of anointing the body, and she is called equal to the apostles, not because she was Jesus's wife, but because she was the first to proclaim the gospel message, I have seen the Lord, he is risen. Um, so, What's the red egg about? Well, because in the East, they said that Mary went not to France, but she went to Rome. And this is incredible. This wealthy woman whose dried fish got shipped to Rome actually went to Rome to meet with the emperor Tiberius to tell him the gospel. This is a remarkable story. I love this story. This strong woman who supported Jesus out of her means, who was the first to proclaim the resurrection, is bold enough and wealthy enough to get an audience with the Roman emperor. And she goes in and she says, Jesus, whom you crucified, rose from the dead. And the emperor said to her, in return, that there was about as much chance of a human being returning to life from the dead as there was of the egg that she was carrying to describe the resurrection that was in her hand turning red and promptly the egg that she was carrying turned red. Now the emperor Tiberius does not convert, but Mary is known in the East as the one who takes the gospel to the emperor himself, a whole different view and a much more accurate read of what the biblical witness was. Um, the egg, by the way, is of course a symbol of Christianity. St. Augustine will go on to say that it's like the sealed tomb of Christ that Jesus literally just walked out of alive. So that, that, that image of the egg becomes, um, becomes important. So, um, and then the, in Eastern Orthodoxy, it tells us that Mary went with St. John and died in Ephesus. Now, those are traditions in the East. We've got no way of proving them. But you, what you see there is that because their exegesis and their reading was clearer, that she has a whole different, she's viewed entirely differently in the East and, frankly, more accurately. So, um, so, uh, but the resurrection appearances to Jesus are captured in a lot of Eastern iconography. You've got a couple of them there at the bottom of that page. Um, the, uh, from the John 20 account, um, you've got uh, just a sort of traditional icon with the grave clothes on the left um, from John 20 with the body clothes and the, the head covering at a separate place. Um, and Jesus saying, touch me not to her, but notice Mary has a full halo there. In other words, she is a saint in the Eastern church. Now, the, the one on the right, I particularly love. It's, it's a similar um, 
representation of that moment from John uh, the John resurrection, but it, you, it's difficult to see in your painting, but Jesus there is carrying a shovel because he's the gardener. And so sometimes you'll see him depicted with a shovel or a hoe or a farmer hat on <laughs> because he's the gardener. Remember, Mary mistakes him for the gardener. But what's also going on there with that image of as Jesus as the gardener? The Garden of Eden. Adam was supposed to be the first gardener and he messed it up. Jesus gives us, uh, is the real gardener. Um, and so I love that image um, of, of Jesus with a shovel <laughs> going out to, 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 uh, to pick up the, uh, to, go, to dig in the yard. So, um, and um, so I, just to, to kind of finish, you've got another picture there of Mary in um, the Burne Jones painting in the tomb with the angels seeing Jesus. Um, that's at the Tate. It's just a beautiful picture. I love that one. Um, you know, um, and then finally though, a little bit about Magdala and why we know what we know about Magdala. Cause I just love the archeology span that has taught us so much about why Mary of Magdala was wealthy, all the excavations. And now, um, it's on Franciscan property. And now at Magdala, there is a beautiful ch church the Duke in Altum Church put out into the deep with huge windows. So you're looking over onto the Sea of Galilee. The altar is shaped like a boat from the era of the first century. So like the Jesus boat, which is really fabulous. And then the chapels in that larger church are all dedicated to significant women in the gospels. So each of the little side chapels and my favorite is the one, the little one on the right. It's called the Encounter Chapel. It is, it is, was designed, so it's set on the pavement of the first century BC AD paving stones of the city of Magdala. So Jesus might have walked on that, that bit of pavement. Mary Magdala probably did. It's set there, but it was then designed to look like the synagogue, which they discovered at Magdala, one of the earliest synagogues in the world and where they made some fabulous discoveries and the painting behind the altar was done by a Spanish artist and it's called the encounter. And it is this, it is the painting of that woman with the issue of blood reaching out to touch the hem of Jesus's robe. And it is one of my very favorite spots in all of Israel. And cause you're sitting in like a synagogue, but you're thinking about that woman and you're thinking about Maria of Magdala and I really love reclaiming Mary Magdala for women because um, I, love, I, I love that Gregory said, look, all of our sins are forgiven. But, but sometimes it's like, where are the women that look like me? Well, Mary is a woman that looked like us. She is a smart, capable woman who, you know, had some stuff going on, seven demons. Um, for some people today, they'll tend to read that as mental health problems, maybe. Um, but uh, seven demons, you know, but she is smart and capable. And, um, you know, and I'm like, yeah, she could be any of us. And so I think then our call is, we know 
Jesus. I have seen the Lord. He is risen. What do we do with it? You know, we also have been forgiven. We have, we have had our lives changed by him. Um, what do we do with that? So I love reclaiming Mary Magdala for that because I, I can see myself in her. You know, a college-educated woman with a nice life. And um, what do I do? Am I going to go talk to the Emperor Tiberius? Am I going to support the work of the ministry? What, what am I doing? So, so that's Mary. Are there any questions? Oh, yeah, Liz. In the, so. in the Eastern icon, Mary, she's wearing the red, but some... It is. We tend to think of red as the sort of color of oppressed fallen women, red light district. Actually, in the East, red, um, in Eastern iconography, red um, is a sign of um, martyrdom um, or passion, like not passion as in lust, but like passion as in the passion, and also then of redemption. So that red is has different significa- significance in the Eastern Church. Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh. What is the significance of the boat in the Magdala Chapel area? Is that because their industry? It's fishing, and of course that that Nolimi Tanagar would uh, or not Nolimi the the Duke in Alton put out into the deep was Jesus's words to the disciples when they were in a boat that would have looked like this fishing and they've had remember they'd been out and they hadn't caught anything and Jesus says put out into the deep and then they bring in the big hole of fish so that's why it's shaped that way yeah you so got to Mary was a fishing. and this was a fishing town and yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so that's the altar yeah that's the main altar in this church and they have little ones shaped like it outside and we had communion at one of the outside ones at this space at, because obviously I'm not Catholic and I'm a woman. So heaven for fend. Rosie, you had a quest- question. Yeah. I was just curious, in the Catholic faith, did they mix up all the Marys? Not anymore. They're, 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 they're pulling that all apart now. But in the West, it has been very mixed up. And it takes a while to unmix up what's been mixed up for 1,500 years. But yeah. <laughs> You've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay. You've got Mary of Magdala. You've got Mary of Bethany. Uh-huh. And then you have the unnamed woman of Luke 7. Okay. Well, no, that fourth one isn't a Mary. She's unnamed. We don't know who she is. Okay. But that's, those are the various women. Nobody ever really confuses Mary, the mother of Jesus. But Mary of Bethany and Mary of Magdala got confused a lot. So... Yeah, Libby. Is there any significance to the difference in their hairstyles? The one on the left looks real demure and covered up and, and has her long hair pulled up, and the other one's got, got short curls. Is there any significance to that at all? Or did I pull something at the very first? Yeah, back to Martha and oh, oh, right. The Caravaggio on, yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, What's that? Yeah, and I think that you can generally say, yeah, that Caravaggio has made Mary much more hubba hubba. (laughs) And the hair is part of that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Other questions? 
Well, ladies, thank you. It's been a joy to be with you, and God be with you. So. Thank you, thank you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.